Coming up soon is Jamie Cudmore, considered one of Canada's all-time best players. Good lock and flank for the lads. 43 caps with Canada, member of Canada at the Rugby World Cups in 03, 07, 2011, 2015. Over 250 pro matches in Europe on top of that. And he's currently the head coach of the Pacific Pride program. And Jamie's going to talk to us about that momentarily. He speaks a bit of French. Yeah, dropping. Where's that Claremont? I know exactly what he's doing. It's funny, he's, he's not as the enforcer, Jamie Cudmore. He's hard as nails, tough as old boots. What, uh, what, a, what a fun opening watching those highlights, Jamie Cudmore. Uh, could have threw a few more on there uh, for those that watch, but uh, just, just Google Jamie Cudmore uh, and Paul O'Connell. You'll see some nice uh, uh, hockey style, <laughs> I guess you could say. But anyway, welcome back to the Canadian Rock. This is uh, Jamie Gray coming to you from uh, Ross St. New Brunswick. Just enjoying uh, the back deck at my house day as I, as I record the opening here. But as you know um, from that intro, we have Jamie Cudmore on, and uh, we'll get to him momentarily, but uh, you're not going to want to miss this one. Uh, let's get to semantics here first. Anytime you need to contact us, we're on Twitter at Canadian Rock, Instagram, the underscore Canadian underscore Rock, Facebook at the Canadian Rock, and our email is the Canadian Rock at gmail.com. I uh, love having our listeners and our viewers, uh, but remember, you got to follow and subscribe. That way you get updated when the, uh, when the new pods are out. And uh, I think we're going to be trying for two a week uh, for a little bit because I've got a backload of six recorded interviews and uh, I'd like to get them out because there's people that have some great messages and great stories about rugby and life uh, that you're going to want to listen to. But we're on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, CastBox. And of course, our website is now operational, The Canadian Rock at Weebly. Sorry, thecanadianrock.weebly.com. You can get on there to check all of previous pods and see some images of our, our guests and my favorite podcasts from outside of the Canadian Rock and things like that. So check it out. Give me some feedback. Saying that, we've, got, uh, we've still got a couple of hoodies left over. <clears throat> nice Canadian Rock hoodies. There's the image of one right there. We've got uh, two or three left. So if you're interested, please contact me, uh, $40 Canadian plus shipping. Um, feel free to send me a note and say that you want one and we'll, uh, we'll make it happen. And uh, this week, our big shout out goes to David Castle over in Cardiff, Wales. So uh, we're beyond the Canadian borders with the Canadian rep. We're looking, uh, we're getting some people over in Cardiff, Wales that are listening to the podcast. So really appreciate the tweet, David. He went on to talk about how it's nice to hear the Canadian stories and to hear the interviews. So that's what we're going to keep doing. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for that, Dave. Big shout out to you for, uh, for sending that in. So looking at that, we're going to quickly look at some rugby news. We're going to bypass the gray area this week because we've got a, a, a very strong and lengthy conversation with Jamie Cudmore. And I know that you all want to get to that, but uh, just briefly in the news right now, a uh, friend of the pod, Cole Keith, uh, good Sussex, New Brunswick boy, Applehawk, New Brunswick, he just re-signed with the Toronto Arrows of the MLR. So hats off to you, Cole. That's great news. Uh, but the big news is coming out of the Southern Hemisphere. And you might be aware of this by now because it's a couple of days old, but... Uh, New Zealand's looking to ditch Sanzar and go to a, like an eight to 10 team competition, which would include all five New Zealand franchises, one Pacific Island team, and anywhere from two to four Australian sides. So basically they're saying, see you later South Africa and see you later Argentina. Um, Sanzar would still remain in control of the rugby championship uh, as of now, um, but they're looking like uh, they realize that New Zealand rugby, the Aotearoa has been really strong for them. Well, apparently they want to keep that up. Uh, 
Uh, Rugby Australia did issue a couple of the statements and acknowledge the preferred position in regard to the competition. Uh, and they're saying that, you know, we look forward to working constructively with New Zealand in the coming weeks to see what can happen. Um, and South Africa said that uh, they've been kept abreast of the thinking from New Zealand all along. So more than likely South Africa at this time, when this happens, it's looking like it'll be either, uh, I'm, I'm hearing 2022, but I, I'm not 100% certain. South Africa is probably going to join uh, one of the European leagues. Um, travel will be you know, roughly the same, probably a little better, but the time zone is the it will be the will be the I guess kicker for South Africa. That'll be that'll be helpful for them. Um, New Zealand's really looking from their perspective that uh, the tournament will deliver an exciting competitive rugby style that their fans and globally uh, and and at home will continue to appreciate. Um, so we'll see how that all shakes down. Uh, but that's some big news coming out of the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, as I said, gray area. I got a few topics in mind, but we're gonna we're gonna bypass that this week. Uh, as I said, we've got Jamie Cudmore on, and uh, Jamie was a stellar, stellar uh, conversationalist there during the interview, and uh, I think you're going to be excited. So sit back, crack a beer, and uh, listen to Jamie's story and uh, his thoughts on rugby and the Pacific Pride. All right, welcome back to the Canadian Rock. I have uh, legendary Team Canada player Jamie Cudmore with us, who's now coaching the Pacific Pride. Uh, Jamie, it's an honor to have you here. Uh, welcome to the Canadian Rock. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Awesome. So we're going to jump right in here. Let's talk about how you became involved in the game. You were born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and uh, you've been involved with rugby for quite a long time. Uh, talk to us about your, your, your introduction into the game and how it evolved you into playing for Team Canada and now coaching the Pacific Pride. Okay, well, uh, that's, that's quite, a, quite a long one. But um, so, yes, as, as, you, as you said, I was uh, originally born in, uh, just outside of Winnipeg. Um, my parents moved uh, out to the West Coast uh, about a week later. Um, I was put in the back of a, a little Vita bug and uh, in a basket. And my dad and mom drove out to the West Coast. Uh, they originally went to Oregon, uh, where my my uncle Pete was uh, was a teacher at the University of Oregon. He was uh, very much involved in athletics. Um, they went down to Oregon and they thought about staying down there, but my my father, who's a physician, didn't like the uh, the way the American medical system was set up. So uh, he, he enjoyed uh, working in Canada and he wanted to stay in Canada and he's, he's an avid skier, uh, even though he'd actually never done it, he wanted to be able to ski. Um, and so moving to Canada, they looked at the West coast and they, uh, they fell upon Squamish, which was obviously very close to Whistler. Um, back in those days, you know, late seventies, it was uh, kind of your typical West coast logging town, very small, um, and uh, there was uh, an opening there at a, at a clinic. My dad took that, and uh, that's where it all kind of started. My father originally played rugby uh, in England uh, throughout his uh, university, and um, that was always kind of his, his major sport. Um, my mom was into ballet, my dad into rugby, so that's kind of where I went as a, as a kind of a rough-and-tumble young kid in, in, uh, in, in Squamish back in those days. It was either, you know, hockey – there was skiing as we weren't far from Whistler. And back in those days, it didn't cost an arm and a leg to go skiing. Yeah. So, uh, there was those kind of those two sports. Um, and there was nothing really in terms of rugby. Uh, I was introduced to the game through old Five Nations tapes that my dad used to have. And we'd watch those and he'd kind of talk about these, these different players of England and Scotland and Ireland, France. And, um, 
you know, that's kind of where I got first introduced to the game, but there was no real opportunity to play the game because, you know, in normal school, you had your, your soccer, your basketball, your volleyball, all that. Um, and there was no rugby available. <coughs> so um, I came to rugby quite late. Uh, my original sports were skiing, soccer in the summer. I played baseball like most other kids. Um, big into skiing uh, as I enjoyed it. My dad used to take me quite a few times as if I wasn't uh, doing too well at school. I'd say, well, we'll, we'll take, a, take a day up the mountains, especially if we had the old 20-centimeter rule or if uh, 20 centimeters fell overnight. Well, we'd, a lot of people would drop work and go skiing. So it was kind of <laughs> E-Mountain Town uh, ideal, so I got I got pulled into that quite a few times, um, and then uh, I worked uh, in the summers in, in the bush, um, doing kind of odd jobs around town, and I started working for a, uh, a logging company who the president was the, also the president of the local club, the Squamish Axman, a guy named Greg Richmond, and uh, he kind of said, listen, if you guys want to come and play uh play with us on saturday well you don't have to work and he thought wow okay what's what's this big thing about rugby and i understood a bit of it watching these videos of my dad and uh i thought all right let's give it a go and it kind of started from there and uh playing local kind of uh you know third division club rugby uh in in the bcru so how old were you when uh when he said if you don't if you play rugby you don't have to work for us well, that was, uh, I was about 15, 16 then. Um, I had a few earlier trainings the year before where it was just kind of an introduction. Um, and then the year after, uh, I, was, I was really looking for a sport. And uh, the great thing about rugby, as we all know, it kind of opens up, opens up a whole new family. You know, I had all these guys who instantly, because you played together, you had a support network you could, uh, you could, count on you know I, I managed to get another job through them doing some gas fitting and uh and they just kept working and kept playing and really really enjoyed myself and uh so I went played for them for a year and then had an opportunity to go down to the city and kind of progress my rugby and I moved to to north to west Vancouver and uh and started playing for the Capilanos which is my my club since since forever and uh and that's where I got to a another area where kids kind of the same age as me, same mindset. Uh, and we, uh, we kept playing and uh, was having a lot of fun. So it kind of just progressed. So Squamish to Vancouver. And then the year after uh, they have a exchange program with the East Coast Bays Rugby Club in uh, the North Harbor of Auckland. And I applied for this exchange. I, I got accepted. So I basically sold everything I had. I'd pick up truck TV and all that type of stuff and just kind of got rid of all that. Got a ticket down south. Uh, the club helped out as well, put some money towards it. Uh, and uh, and off I went. So it kind of, you know, Squamish to Vancouver year by year by year. The next year off to New Zealand. Um, everything went very, very quickly. So uh, I'm down, uh, by this time I was down in uh, New Zealand, 19 years old. Uh, have, having fun, pouring concrete, building houses in the week and playing rugby every weekend and we'd go fishing or surfing on the Sundays. It was, uh, it was kind of the, the perfect life. Yeah. Really, really enjoyed myself. And as I said, like each year I kept progressing, kept getting to a different level. Um, and uh, I was really enjoying myself. So uh, 
every time a new opportunity arose, I'd said, yeah, let's give it a go. And uh, I kept kind of pushing forward. So that year was really good for, for myself. I got uh, selected in the Harbor, Harbor Under 21s team. Um, but at the same time, uh, I was called back into the Pacific Pride program, which, uh, funnily enough, I know I, I'm now head coach of. So I was called by my club captain, uh, Julio Dakotas, who uh, I later worked for, and said, "Listen, uh, you got you got to come back to Canada." And I said, "Well, what do you mean? No, I'm, I've got Harbor 21s. I'm really excited about this opportunity." He said, "He said, I'll see you next week." <laughs> there was no <laughs> argument. <laughs> For any of you guys, anybody that knows Julio or the, his brothers, they're uh, they're very very convincing in <laughs> their argument. So, uh, yeah, I was on, I was on a plane until the next week, and uh, off I went, and um, I then back to Victoria and joined the uh, Pacific Pride, and then things just kind of kept kept building. Uh, did a year in the Pride, really enjoyed that. Really, the great thing I think for me at that time uh, was it put me in a professional environment. Um, you know, it's not you know as kind of streamlined as it is today, but what it was back then was it was training every day. Uh, you had to be there at a certain hour. You had your weights after, and you had to sort your life out around work and life and school and kind of create that good balance. Um, which sets you up per perfectly per for professional rugby. Came back, got, in, got involved with the Pride, and, and as I said, um, got into uh, a training regime that perfectly set me up for professional rugby. There's that structure that you have to, uh, you have to adhere to and you have to get you know, everything organized so that you can excel um, you know, with the weights, with your food, with, with all that which um, the following year I got a, a great opportunity to move to Wales and, uh, and play with uh, Flanetli, the, now the Scarlets. Um, and it was, it was unbelievable because I'd gone from Squamish the next year to Vancouver and then to New Zealand. And then I'm back in Victoria and I'm in the Pride program. And the Pride program is amazing because we've got all these guys, similar age, we're all competing we're all playing in the the BC Premier League, which back in those days was 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 quite uh, was quite a good level. Unfortunately, it's, it's dipped uh, over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and next thing I know, I get this opportunity to go to Wales. So as I said earlier, I said you know these opportunities kept coming, and uh, I just kept working hard. And I thought, all right, let's do it. Off to Wales. So took the contract. I think I was making about 1200 bucks a month, but I had a house and I had a car, so I didn't have much really to worry about. Um, I still didn't know, even back at the beginning when I was playing, that it was possible to play professional rugby. So off I went to Wales, and I remember I've got this photo in my head that I'll probably never forget, walking into the change room that morning, and I just look, and there's like Scott Cornell, Stephen Jones, Lee Davies, John Davies, Mark Jones, like all these, like it's basically the Welsh team, couple yeah. Irish three brothers who uh, Simon's now uh, um, was uh, the forwards coach for Ireland all these guys sitting there and I'm just like how the hell did I get here this is <laughs> and uh, I just thought you know well I gotta I gotta make uh, I gotta make my uh, make my mark and uh, you know I better I better work hard here because otherwise I'm gonna look like an idiot 
because uh, everybody's looking at me and they're like, who's this Canadian guy? And where's <laughs> <the problem?"> you know? <laughs> so I had, a, I had a great year. Um, you know, the great thing that they set up there for me and a few other younger guys was you trained with a professional team all week. And if you got selected in the team in the weekend, um, obviously you'd play or you'd be on the bench. Um, or you'd get loaned out to a first division club. So back in there, it used to be premiership, first division, and then all the divisions below that. Um, and I played for a team called uh, Slandovery, which is further up west, um, which is kind of a farming community. A lot of boys only spoke Welsh. They liked to take the piss out of me the first training I went to, <laughs> I went to on, a, on a Thursday night. They're all calling the lineouts in Welsh. So I had no idea what <laughs> I didn't know what the hell was going on. I'm like, I thought they spoke English in this country. <laughs> so I was completely lost. And then uh, about 10 minutes later, they all burst into laughter and quite, quite happy with themselves with the, the jokes they were playing on the stupid Canadian guy. <laughs> anyway, I started playing with them uh, every, every weekend if I wasn't involved with Tanathi. And uh, I got a few starts with Tanathi, quite a few off the, the bench, and then a lot of games with Thundavri. So it was perfect. It was, uh, you know, for a young guy trying to work hard, trying to get to that next level, I had games or at least half a game every weekend, uh, depending on who I was playing with. So it was, uh, it was really, really good in terms of my progression. And, uh, and then again, next, next year, uh, came back, um, got selected in Canada tour that summer. Um, went, uh, we went to Australia, came back again. And, uh, and that went, uh, on into the world cup in 03. Um, and I got selected in that squad, played, played in that world cup and, that's when, unfortunately, that year is when the the region the, the region setup got got started in Wales. Um, not so much, unfortunately, for me, but uh, yes, unfortunately for me, but not so much for Welsh rugby because I think they really needed to change things there. There was a lot of foreigners taking up a lot of spots of Welsh guys, um, and I understand why they went to the regions. Um, and the the director of rugby, Guy Jenkins, was uh, really good to me, saying, "Listen, you know, we'd love to keep you, but." if you can go and look somewhere else and find another club, you're, you're probably going to want to do that because you're not Welsh qualified. You're always going to get looked over by, by a Welsh guy. And, uh, and I, I appreciated that honesty. And uh, I started looking around uh, with kind of different agents and people that I knew. And um, when we were down in the world cup in 03, Mike James helped me out a lot by uh, setting me up with his agent. And we started talking to different clubs in France. And that's kind of how the whole France chapter started. Um, his, uh, his guy, Bruno, sorted me out with uh, a contact in Grenoble. Um, and we, we kind of worked through the contracts towards the end of the World Cup. And I ended up uh, accepting that offer and going off to Grenoble. Well, this is kind of, you know, early 2000s. Um, you know, it was very difficult to kind of understand exactly where this was, know anything really about it. Um, so, you know, I do a little bit of uh, searching on the internet. The internet wasn't like it is nowadays. Um, so it was uh, kind of books and talking to people and understanding exactly where it was. And next thing you know, off I went. Off I went to, uh, off I went to, uh, to Grenoble and landed in Lyon, not really knowing where the hell I was, didn't speak any French. And that's kind of where the whole the big French adventure started back in, uh, in 03 after the world cup. That's, that's pretty cool 
journey. Like you're, you're one of the few people that I've spoken to that hasn't played, didn't play university rugby that has played for team Canada. You spoke a lot about um, other sports that you played and being a multi-sport athlete is something I endorse. And you, you spoke about that for quite a bit here at the start and the family aspect of a rugby team, just that camaraderie and your brotherhood. I had a, um, on a side note, I had a really good friend of mine just passed away a few weeks ago and he was a rugby brother and the whole rugby community kind of came together and did whatever we could to help his family. And, you know, he's got three young boys and, a, and he left behind a wife. So it's, I, I, I fully understand that family aspect of a rugby community. So you hit on all three of those things in the matter of, you know, five or six minutes of talking. Uh, you're in France now that, you know, you played your first World Cup in 03. And then you went on and played three more and uh, you played 07, 11, and 15. And it must have, it must have been different. I wanna, I'm going to share my screen here. I want to show you a little clip. And uh, watching this, would you have done this in the 03 in Australia? <laughs> so the French players now pulled in by Doucetois and uh, Cadmore, who yeah. speaks a bit of French. Yeah, Each dropping. <laughs> plays at Claremont and knows exactly what he's doing. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, probably not in 2003. No, I didn't. I didn't have the experience that, that I did there in that in uh, in 15. That's for sure. <laughs> so, Sorry. I was just going to ask, did you actually, did you hear anything that they were trying to say or did they throw you out right away? Did they, did they curse at you or like, did they laugh? I knew, I knew exactly what I was doing. <laughs> because, uh, that, those last few years, uh, Nathan Hines and I were playing together at Claremont, uh, second row partners, and we, we used to do this all the time. And I think if, if, I'm, if I'm honest, I think I got it from Nathan. <laughs> he, would do, he would kind of drag slowly back sometimes when it was a lineup, maybe a penalty or what have you. And he'd act like he was doing up his shoes kind of behind play. <clears throat> and when they'd come in and kind of have a little huddle walking towards the lineup, he would normally walk through the huddle, getting back into onto our side. <laughs> so we've done that. We've done that numerous times in, you know, Heineken Cup games uh, in the years previously. And I knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, Damien Shuley, who calls the lineouts, also called the lineouts at Claremont with us. He's coincidentally also my neighbor in Claremont, so we're good friends. <laughs> so I just got in and I said, oh, Damien, qu'est-ce qu'on fait? You know, like, what are we doing? <laughs> and, uh, and he kind of looks up and he's like, oh, no, get out of here. And I was like, oh, try to pull me out of the way. Get out of here, get out of here. And I just had a little laugh inside and uh, I knew they were going uh, middle back and they wanted to drive it. But unfortunately, our... Um, our tactics at that time were to stay on the ground, which, you know, I was, I wasn't too happy with, but regardless, that's what it was. And, uh, I kind of, you know, got back in line and said, Oh, this is where they're going, boys. We've got to try and stop it. And uh, unfortunately they got through, uh, and, uh, and scored a try, uh, I think just under the post after that. But, um, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a bit of a laugh for that one for sure. Yeah, I remember watching that live and I thought that is, that's priceless. Cause I think, you know, you always have somebody in your team that tries to do that, but, you seem to get away with a little bit more than maybe the, the regular folk will do. So you had those, you had those four World Cups. You just got to act like you know what you're doing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you had the 03 in Australia, 07 in France, 2011 in New Zealand, 2015 in England. Which one was your, which one was your favorite? Um, I don't think there's one favorite. Um, 
I've got great memories from every single one of them. You know, obviously 03 being the first one, I'm kind of the, this, this young, I'm a young guy, kind of eyes open to the, to the rugby world, not really understanding the whole professionalism thing yet, um, as it was still kind of still quite, quite new at that time. Um, and then France was amazing because I had started to build a name in France, uh, you know, being living there at that time and, and joining up with the team was, was great. Then, um, you know, New Zealand was huge because, you know, the people there were amazing. You know, I, I see a lot of similarities to the, to the people in Wales and the people on the West Coast of Canada with New Zealand in that they love the rugby and then the kind of the whole landscape is very similar in my opinion to the to the west coast you know being on the same ocean you know everybody loving being out uh, outdoors fishing a lot you know kind of getting the bounty from the sea like we do on the west coast and everybody loving their rugby um, and really getting behind all the teams not just their own team the where we were based up north, uh, you know, there's Canadian flags everywhere, Japanese flags for the other teams that were in our group. And every time you went out, like people wanted to shake hands and talk and, you know, just really, really great atmosphere. Um, and then, uh, and then England again was, uh, was, was huge in that, you know, I got my, brought my family over, my wife and, and, and daughter were there. Um, my boy as well. So that was amazing to have them involved in that in my last World Cup and uh, to be able to captain the, my country at, at that World Cup as well was a huge honor. Um, you know, I think uh, it was, uh, there's, there's good things to, to take out of all four. Especially probably um, that last one's in England. You said your father was from England, correct? So that would have been kind of nice to be back where your father started his rugby playing days in a sense and, and uh, got to captain the team there that would have been really 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 neat for you I, I imagine no it was it was and him him being there as well and the family my family being there is uh was uh was really really great and then uh you know kind of driving home afterwards was uh was a lot of fun uh <laughs> the whole atmosphere and everything throughout the finals and stuff it was uh it was some good memories that's great um I've always been a fan of something like the Churchill Cup. I always loved, you know, when when I get a chance to watch some of those games on TV, which didn't happen a whole lot, but um, it just, it was always, it seemed to be a really significant tournament for a candidate. Uh, it, I felt like it helped our national program moving forward. Do you think something like that can be brought back or is it, is it too big of a, too big of an agenda to try and get it on the table? Um, I think, I think the, the time for the Churchill Cup is, uh, has come and gone. Um, I agree with you that it was a good tournament back in its day and that, uh, you know, we had some better competition for Canada and, and the States in, uh, in Japan and definitely with the Saxons. Um, I think it was a good um, opening kind of salvo for them in terms of their player development. Uh, I think if we were to do it now, uh, I don't think it would be beneficial for us. I think we need to look more uh, around us uh, in terms of playing with MLR teams, playing against the States, playing against Brazil, playing against uh, Chile, Argentina, kind of going more north-south, um, as I think that's more the level that we're at right now. If we start winning those games, and that's definitely what we're working for, um, then we can start looking at playing against the Saxons, playing against Italy, playing against Romania, Georgia, those type of teams. 
but I don't think right personally that's where we're at right now. We need to kind of build ourselves back up. We've got ourselves in a pretty bad spot over the last 15 years. And I think one of those reasons is because we didn't have the pride at during that time. Um, Cause I think our under underage setup is very good. Our under 18s are strong. Our under 20s are, are strong and getting stronger. Um, but there's that real gap between under 20s to international rugby. MLR is starting to fill that gap. Um, we've got a few guys over in Europe, some guys in the Southern Hemisphere. So that gap is, is starting to um, close a little bit. But we need more players. We need to over-resource the national team with these guys. So obviously the grassroots side of things needs to be worked on across the country. But that comes from the provinces. And ourselves with the Rugby Canada, we need to work a lot more on res better resourcing our, our age grade teams and then in turn the national teams. We've got real competition for uh, places and it's not just, you know, we bring in all the pros in from this, that and the other. We've got to get a group of kind of 45 to 60 guys who are constantly competing. We've got some consistency in selection and we start building forward uh, and beating teams around us uh, before we start going into something like a, like a Churchill Cup competition. That's fair, yeah. I, uh, I mentioned to on a couple of times I was chatting with some people on the pod about uh, something similar to a Lions tour. I love the Lions tour. I think it's an amazing event, but I also think it's, um, it's creating a bigger gap between tier one and tier two. If you, if you, you know, go by those names, because you know, it was supposed to be this year. It's going to be next year. And when that's happening, South Africa, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, they're getting massive resources, which, you know, rightfully so. But at the same time, Canada was supposed, is supposed to be hosting England, meaning England's coming over, but we're not going to get to see Owen Farrell. We're not going to see Atoji. We're not going to see Ben Young. It's, we're getting a tier two team. And maybe that's good for our rugby, but I've always thought in order to improve and to get better, you need to play the, you need to, you know, play the best that you can. <laughs> Do you think something like a Lions tour, but like a, North America, South America version of it could happen, where you'd have Canada, U.S., you know, Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil forming a team and maybe doing like a Lions tour to Europe or to, you know, wherever. Do you think something like that could be viable? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think you could do a North American Lions, a South American Lions. Um, I think you could compete quite well uh, looking at the talent that's there now. Um, I think it's a great idea um, and might maybe kind of flip things the other way. Um, I think maybe right in over the next couple of years, that might be a, a bit too much to ask, but I think definitely if the American, uh, if the North American bid can get the world cup, maybe in, was it 30, 27 or 31? 20, I think it's 27 or 31. They're looking. Yeah. So that would uh, that that could be something that could maybe coincide maybe a two years early to kind of get that fanfare going and kind of show the talent that's around. I think it'd be a great idea um, if we can get everything off the ground. It, the, the biggest problem that we have definitely in North America and probably South America as well is is just distance. Yeah, um, we're such a big country. Like I flew on Monday out to Newfoundland in nine and a half hours in the same country, right? Yeah. My friends don't understand that. 
normally I'm flying, I'm flying home from Europe, but it takes nine and a half hours, not just going to Newfoundland. Yeah, but, we, got, uh, we got a big space here. Yeah, but I mean, I think in the future, if we can start getting these little hotbeds of rugby across North America and start kind of building up those regions, that'll help kind of start connecting all the dots. Um, I think, as I said earlier, MLR is a, is a great tool to, to do that as a majority of the teams are quite North American based Canadian and American players, um, which is, which is great. Hopefully they, the MLR as a, as an entity continues to push that North American player, uh, um, quota, um, whether they will or not, I, I'm, I, ho I hope they do, but it's, up to them really it's it's their it's their baby for sure I, i'd like to see a few more canadian squads as well but uh, i guess i'm not sure the parameters of gaining entrance into it or the financial backing that you would need but uh, i do i do love watching toronto play that's for sure yeah well toronto bill and and mark have done a great job with chris as well um you know we've got some good young canadian coaches aaron carpenter's there running the forwards and doing a great job um, so, you know, they've, they've put in a huge amount of that investment, especially Bill and Mark, um, to, to be in, involved in the MLR and, you know, they're, they're going to lose quite a lot of money for the first, you know, probably 10 years, but I definitely hope, uh, and I think they do, as well as all the other people involved in it, that it's, it's going to build similar to what the MLS did 20 years ago. Um, and build it into something where the, the franchises are, are worth a, a good amount of money and, and they start to get some revenue and they can kind of balance things out as opposed to only just giving, 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 giving. Um, and, you know, they can start to get more people into, into stadiums. They get a good TV deal going and, uh, and just build it. And it's hugely positive because you look at the last three years, the first couple of years that everybody thought, oh, is this going to be like pro rugby? Is it just going to blow up after 18 months? Um, and it hasn't, and it's getting some good traction. You start to see some big names come over. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I definitely hope that it'll continually build. I hope maybe we can get another Canadian team or maybe a, an American team with some Canadian interests. I think that's probably the easier way to go about it as opposed to starting a whole new franchise now, which is going to be the cost, I think, is around, around $10 million, uh, in terms of, you know, initial entry free um capital calls and then your budget and all the rest of it that's it's, it's a big big pill to swallow um so you know unless you know a couple a couple millionaires that want to lose a bit of money <laughs> it's, uh, it's going to be hard to, to get something like like that going unless it's in uh, an entity that's already uh already going right now yeah it's not something i can afford to do on my teacher's salary but you know maybe someday <laughs> All right, so I usually prep uh, prep my guests for this section, but I, I, I forgot to do that here. But what we do now is I kind of take a break from the generic questions and we jump into a, what I call a quick fire section. And I've got a bunch of questions. It's just basically you're going to give me a one or two word answer. Um, sometimes people talk a little bit longer, but it's just it's for fun to kind of get to know you a little bit better as a person uh, and, and just to have a little bit of fun. Sound like you're up for it? I'm up for it. All right, so first, first handful are about rugby, then after that, it's kind of more about you as a person. All right. Best team you ever faced? Uh, best team I ever faced? Oh, it'd be the, the, the All Blacks in the New Zealand World Cup 
in uh, in oh, uh, oh 07. Or 20, yes. 2011? 2011, sorry, I'm getting them all mixed up. 2011, yeah. It's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice mistake to be able to make. <laughs> yeah. it's, I, I remember watching that because Chauncey's a buddy of mine. And I was, yeah. I was texting, I guess, Blackberry Messenger before the game saying, that's awesome. You get to line up against Richie McCaw. He, he writes back, he goes, not, he's not even in the lineup. I was yeah. disappointed. <laughs> all right, best player you ever faced? Best player ever faced? Well, there's, there's quite a few. Um, I'll, I'll go to my, uh, my old buddy, Paul, Paul O'Connell. We had, we had some good battles over the years and throughout Europe. And, uh, and then again, uh, in my final uh, World Cup game with, uh, with Canada against Ireland. I was going to ask you about Paul. I found a few clips on YouTube of, you know, some uh, hockey fight styles happening there, but yeah. still any animosity between you two or? No, no, no animosity at all. As, as you know, in rugby, it's uh, everything happens on the field, stays on the field. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's no animosity at all. The, the only reason that all, that all escalated into what it was, was uh, I, I thought we were both going to get five for fighting, you know, as, as good Canadian. <laughs> I'm going to go, well, you're going to go too. So yeah. you send a couple, you take a couple, and everybody has a laugh, and we go off for 10 minutes. And then I got the red card. So I thought, <laughs> I've done something wrong here. And when I actually look back at it, well, I, I thought we both did pretty much the same thing. So we just could have, should have been a yellow card for everybody, and that would have been the end of it. Yeah. All right. So hit, this might be the answer for your next one. Toughest player you ever faced? Toughest player? Um, there's been a few. I usually tell the guys or girls that I'm on, like, this is the person that if you're looking up and it's a 1v1, you don't want this person running at you with the ball. <laughs> uh, then that'd be uh, either Henry Tulagi or uh, Chris Masoy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've, 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 I've run into Henry quite a few times and uh, not always come off uh, the winner, that's for sure. <laughs> right, sevens or fifteens? Oh, fifteens. Sevens is a, sevens is a, is a completely different game. It is. Best match you were ever a part of? Um, besides my first cap for Canada in Chicago, uh, way back when, um, I'd have to say our uh, our top 14 winning uh, game against Perpignan in 2010. May 29th, 2010, uh, Clermont finally winning the Bouclier after 100 years of existence, uh, after 11 different finals lost. And I had already been involved in three of them. Uh, to win on the fourth one and uh, and basically uh, see Clermont erupt was uh, was something something to behold. So um, I'll definitely keep that one. Sounds a little bit like the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. Uh, favorite rugby tradition. Uh, favorite rugby tradition. Um, the biggest one for me is to, um, that shaking hands at the end of the game. Um, you know, hammering each other for 80 minutes or even up to 100 minutes on some games. Um, and the ability to, when the final whistle goes, everything's pardoned, everything's good. You look your opponent in the eye, shake a, shake his hand, thanks for the battle, and, uh, and off, to the, uh, off to the change room and uh, maybe have a beer with them after. You don't see that very, uh, very few other places, I don't think. No, that's right. Uh, best team you played with? Um, best team. I was very fortunate to be invited to the World 15 uh, back in, I, don't know, I think it was 2009, 
2011, I think. Um, and we played a game against the uh, classic All Blacks in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Uh, I went out there and, geez, it was, I pulled in about a, I think it was a Tuesday. It was about 42 degrees with humidity. And <laughs> gross. Yeah, it was, it was gross. We were out, um, had this rock star team kind of assembled from like Europe, Southern Hemisphere. Uh, there was guys, you know, from all over, all different, uh, you know, super rugby from uh, the premiership, from the top 14. Uh, Vern Cotter was the coach at that time. And, uh, and we had a, we had a really fun week with uh, lots of dinners and, uh, and, you know, a few beers after training uh, at the cricket club in, in KL. Uh, and then we played the classic All Blacks uh, that weekend, and um, and we won, and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. One of the great great games that, uh, to be involved with. It wasn't kind of a high pressure game because it was very you know very fun and very um, it was kind of put together as a as a bit of a spectacle, but um, we uh, we had a lot of fun. Is that why it was in Malaysia? It was just like a spectacle as you said or yeah what well, was uh, it was put together by uh some investment banks and um they basically put it all on and uh they called in the uh the classic all blacks paid for all that so there was a lot of you know kind of alicadu stuff in the week where we we showed up and had different meals and there was banquets and a bunch of you know investment bankers and bankers and all these people that you know wish wish they would have played sports in their days but they're happy to play for uh for a good week for the for the boys and, and have a have a game on the weekend so it was, it was that's a cool that's really cool all right best nickname that you've heard for myself well there's there's a few um but well, uh what is but your nickname my nickname well i've got a few but uh it originally started squamish because in north vancouver nobody knew who i was when i originally joined the Capilanos and they said oh who's the big guy from Squamish and it just kind of stopped everybody yeah. called Squamish um, and then another coach at Capilanos uh, Roger Hatch goes he goes look at that big guy he's so cuddly he just wants to <laughs> cuddle and so they started calling me cuddles um, <laughs> Cuddles, and kind of went from there um, nickname, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and it's always the ones that are so that you hate that always stick so. that's right <laughs> Uh, and I had a good one in France where um, Jacques Delmas, who was the, the original coach of, uh, of Grenoble when I arrived, he called me the sheriff because uh, there was a, an instance where I had come into the game and we weren't playing very well. Um, and I, I cleared out a ruck and somebody eye gouged me and I, I peeled him over the back of the ruck and started feeding into him. And then we kind of kept playing and pick and go. And this guy was still on the ground after he had been dealt with. And, uh, and so Jack called, called me out in video on the Monday. <laughs> this, he's going off in French. He goes, you see this? We're playing like shit. And then all of a sudden the sheriff comes in. He has to deal to this man. And then we score a try. So, and then there, you know, you get called the sheriff in front of everybody in the team. And I'm like, oh, I'm never going to hear the end of it. So, uh, Sheriff, Sheriff's better than Cuddles, though, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess so. <laughs> All right, so I don't know if you've been watching. Have you watched the uh, Michael Jordan documentary? I've been watching a bit, yeah. It's been re I really enjoyed it. All right, so for you, who was the Jordan, who was the Pippin, and who was the Robin, the players you played with? Who was the Jordan? Um, what I played with? Uh, 
Hard to say. I'd say like somebody that pushed themselves that that much and was kind of the, the ultimate perfectionist. I would say uh, a guy I used to play with called Tony Marsh. He was a uh, um, Kiwi guy who moved to France quite young, as he found he was uh, he was barred to any advancement in the in the, uh, in the All Blacks. So moved to France, became French qualified, and started playing for France. <laughs> Tony was a guy who was, who was quite uh, introvert. Um, you know, he's one of the only guys I've ever seen that never warmed up with the team, which in rugby is quite uh, quite bizarre. You don't see that very much. Um, he would, uh, would warm up in the hallway outside the change room, um, and then he would come out really for only like the last five minutes of the warm-up uh, when we do our launch plays. Um, so I'd, I'd say he, he was very similar to that. You know, he would – he would ask a lot of the people around him. Um, he would always do things to the most extreme levels, like the fitness stuff. He was always first. Uh, he was always proper on his nutrition, always had his little um, little kind of um, package of food in, uh, in, in change rooms and stuff where he'd eat right after training. And you didn't see that much, especially in France where they said you were professional, but a lot of guys didn't act like professionals. You know, in terms of the weight room, in terms of nutrition, in terms of all those things that kind of create your make your body react and and deal with the load and and be professional. Um, he was one of those guys that you know, really kind of pushed that. Um, did he play? He played center. Yeah, he played center internationally for France. I think he played you know probably twenty five thirty times for France. I could be wrong. Uh, he was involved in the World Cup uh, a few times uh, with them, and uh, he was really, really a very, very good player and a, and a great mentor for somebody who, when I first came to Clermont, um, and I love, always loved my training, and I loved that whole kind of aspect of things and preparing myself. That was kind of one of my marks of difference at that time, in that um, you know, I, I knew that you know, I'm the guy from Canada. Nobody's going to take you seriously. Everyone thinks you should be walking in with a hockey stick. You know what I mean? I look on the old, um, old kind of stereotype of the Canadian guy. Yeah. Um, I knew if I worked harder, I was stronger in the gym, I, and I, I dominated my, my play in the field, I know I'd be able to keep, keep playing and keeping on the, on the field. And, and Tony kind of affirmed that with seeing how much he worked and how, how well he did uh, through all that hard work. Okay. He would be, uh, he'd be one. Um, Rodman, geez, I don't know. There's, a, there's, I've seen a few colorful characters come through. <laughs> I've been involved with, but um, uh, the Rodman was probably um, Sione Luaki, who was number eight. Who, more so than Rodman, it, uh, was uh, an amazing player. But he's like, he had like, he changes hair every week. He had tattoos up the yin yang. Like, <laughs> he's getting new tattoos on his neck, on his face, on his back every every week. Hairstyle, um, and you know, he's the only guy I've ever seen buy a pizza and buy a lasagna and put the lasagna on top of the pizza and eat all of it at once. But, uh, but yeah, but in terms <laughs> of like rugby ability, was like off the charts when he was motivated and wanted to do something, he could pretty much do anything. He cut guys in half in defense, offload, you know, running down the field with the ball in one hand like a loaf of bread, and he's a uh, He's doing this, this, that, and the other. It was uh, something qu quite a sight to behold. But um, 
and then uh, the Pippin, the kind of the setup man, uh, it's hard to say. Difficult, you know, kind of maybe doesn't work, but um, you know, there's uh, there's guys like um, well, maybe Brock James back in the day. He was a you know he was a facilitator, right? He's the guy that uh, that used the ball as as well as as any, you know, in terms of distributing, in terms of kicking, and, and you know, setting people up with those cross field kicks. And, Finishing games with with uh, with good uh, good goal kicking ability and uh, and his passing ability with like long uh, passes on a string to put people through holes uh, was very very good. Um, didn't really appreciate the defensive side of things, which I think was one of his downfalls. But you know, not everybody can be strong everywhere. So you know, he was he was very good at the things he did well. Awesome. All right. Any three that you would take golfing with you? Any three of those three or any, any, know, any, any anybody alive, dead, rugby, non-rugby. Oh yeah. Um, golf. Well, I haven't played golf in about or, 15 years. But that, that you would take fishing with you. Then. So I'm going to, I'm going to start again. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, I just go with my brothers, my, my two brothers and my dad. Um, we always, we haven't had a chance to kind of do anything like golf over the last 20 years being in Europe. Um, and I think, uh, the next, next be who I with will be will be them. Great. That's a great choice. All right, chips or cookies? Chips or cookies? Yeah. I'd take probably chips. Yeah. What kind? Uh, just your classic kind of nacho chips for uh, with some salsa. Nothing, nothing too crazy. Uh, French fries or onion rings? Oh, French fries. French fries or poutine? French fries again. <laughs> Favorite beer? Favorite beer? Um, well, when I was a, was a kid growing up in Squamish, it was always coconut. So, uh, okay. uh, so uh, yeah. Alright. They still make that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Alright. What's a guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure? Uh, I'm not much into, into sweet stuff, but... Um, don't mind uh, you know, a big coat de boeuf or like, a, I guess here you'd call it a tomahawk or like a, something like that. Coat de boeuf is like a big rib on steak um, and you just slap some butter on that and throw it on the barbecue and that's, uh, that's, that's me for the weekend. <laughs> All right. Best place for a post-match beer? Hmm, post-match beer. Um, I think the best the best place I've ever had a post-match beer was again going back to 2010 when we won the top 14 and we were in the Stade de France and um, obviously in the Stade de France the change rooms are very very big and in one end there's uh, a big uh, it's basically like a jacuzzi an in-ground jacuzzi uh, and we were then there with the boucle in the jacuzzi having beers and uh that was uh, probably the one of the best places i've ever had a post-match beer <laughs> interesting all right what series are you binge watching right now uh i don't do too much binge watching but my wife and i we've uh we've watched the uh the jordan um documentary and then uh we just started uh pretty little fires and uh it's actually i think it's very very well done and especially in the in the context of you know the Black Lives Matter and um, you know, all the unrest in in Canada and in, especially in the states. I think it's um, it's it's very much on point as to what is that the, 
Is that Reese Witherspoon? Yes. And uh, I think Kerry Washington, who's very, very good in it. And I'll have to work. Yeah, that's one that's on my list to look at. Yeah, a good one. All right, what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie uh, is Full Metal Jacket. Nice classic. Who would play you in the Netflix movie of your life? <laughs> would play? Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, an actor. I'm trying to think of an actor that looks like me, but I, I don't. Doesn't know. have to look like you. No, I guess you're right. Um, I don't know. Maybe I. Maybe my brother. Is my an actor. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Who would be the lead? I'm looking version, so I think that probably <laughs> go well. The who, would be, who would be the leading lady? The leading lady. Oh, I don't know. Um, so I'll just throw this out there. A few guys have answered this, and they wouldn't answer it. So they were scared to get in trouble. But oh. A, but a few guys have said, "Well, my wife knows I have a crush on this one." <laughs> so you can play it safe, or you can just, you know, you can, it's up to you. <laughs> oh, my, my, me and my wife are on stable ground. We don't have to worry about stuff like that. <laughs> You know, as an actress, leading lady, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good ones, but um, geez, I never even thought about that. Uh, I can't even think of anybody right now, to be honest. That's fair. Pretty girl, you take Giselle Bunch and nine times out of ten. She's not an actress, so I don't know if it would work. It's, it's your movie. She could be. She could be. <laughs> All right, last one. Who had the biggest impact on you as a player? Um, I dare say your dad, but well, yeah, my, I, I was just going to say that there's there's not just one person. I'd say there's probably at least three. Um, one being my father at the beginning of my career, and kind of creating a, an awareness of rugby, and then you know pushing me on and helping me uh, kind of get into rugby. Then uh, the next one would be uh, Tim Murdy, who was the uh, original coach. Uh, at the Caplanos when I joined the club and he was uh, he was really really good in kind of forming a lot of the different kind of ideals through through my game and then later on professionally uh, would be Vern Cotter who uh, I worked with for for eight years and then worked a lot definitely over the last four or five years in my coaching career um, sounding off a lot of ideas and you know basically not a mentor but doing some mentor type uh, activities and, you know, questioning and asking and, and just basically working through uh, different problems and uh, kind of a soundboard of, uh, of things that, uh, you know, you're trying to work through. So uh, those three would definitely be uh, my, my go-tos. Excellent. All right. So that's it for the quick fire. Just got a few questions left and then we'll, then we'll be done here, Jamie, but well, you, you spoke on and off about the Pacific pride. Um, what can you tell us about the program itself that can help the national team kind of gain that level of respectability it had in the nineties and early two thousands and stuff? Cause we've been, as you've noted, and it's apparent that over the last 15 years, our ranking kind of keeps going in the wrong direction. How can the Pacific pride help that kind of regroup? Um, as I said earlier, the, the biggest thing we can do is we can help resource the national team with, with good, prepared players um i think as as i said earlier the age grade setup is 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 is, is very it's very good it obviously can get better and the people that are involved in that know that and they're trying to do their best and they're and they're working very very hard to get there um 
we are doing the same thing, but just in an age grade, which is a little bit older. So I've got a lot of the under 20 guys. I've got a lot of guys who are a little bit older that will hopefully be able to go on and resource the national team. It just basically, it creates uh, it creates a fire under everybody's ass. You know, the guys who have made it to the national team, they know that they've got hungry young kids behind them that are trying to push them. So it pushes those guys. It pushes the guys uh, in the pride program, knowing that there's opportunities. I've had, I think, 11 guys go on to MLR contracts this last season and more are to go this year. Um, that pushes guys again. So we've got more guys coming through the under-20 program, into the pride program, off onto MLR, off onto sevens, off into the national team uh, setup. And uh, it just creates a, a better environment, more competition, um, you know, more more kids on the on the ground, more everybody goes back to the old more cows, more milk, more more cream, right? And everything kind of rises to the top. So I think our setup is uh, is crucial in preparing these guys for the next level because it doesn't happen overnight, and you can't blood these guys in games. It's too late. Um, sure, we're going to have to start blooding new guys over the next four-year cycle to the World Cup, but we need these guys to be prepared so that when they do come to that national team or they go into an MLR setup, that they're prepared. Um, they're prepared physically. They're prepared mentally. They know what they need to do to compete at that level. The load that is needed, they get through that load in a proper uh, time frame. It's not rushed. Um, that's one of the great things now with COVID in that, you know, I've got a lot of guys who they needed recovery. They've now got that. Now they've, they're back in the gym. They've got a good foundation. They're back running again. They're getting that running foundation. They're getting that weights foundation. That skills piece is going to come when we can start getting back on the field, which hopefully for us is going to be August, September. Um, obviously socially distanced, of course, but, um, you know, that's fine. You can, you can pass know four or five meters two meters and uh, work on that skill element because that's a that's a big work on for us catch pass skill catching over your head making sure you can pass off both hands running with your heads up so you can see opportunities and, and play what's on um, so I think the the pride program is very it's an integral piece in our in our rugby infrastructure to help bring the national team up into the uh, into the the teens and hopefully the top ten over the next ten years because I think that's where we legitimately need to be and we have the athletes to do it we just need to build them up to actually get there and stay there. You you mentioned a really great point there. It's something that I think rugby Canada struggled with over the last over recent times. It's uh, using you know your head up while you're running like we call it where I coach on field awareness just being aware of what's happening, being able to see where defense is, being able to see what type of offense you can put in play. And I think if you can teach that at the under 18, under 20, at the Pacific Pride, it's it definitely will strengthen our team because as you said, we do have really good athletes. Um, some of them some of them are coming from a, a background where maybe they might not have picked rugby up until they're 15 or 16. So getting that awareness across to them is definitely key. So how, how can players join the Pride? Like, how does that get set up? So um, we've uh, created a, a national talent ID database, which is currently being populated. Adam Kleberger, who um, ex-Canadian International, has coached in Canada for, uh, for, the last, uh, for the last little while, done a huge job with the uh, academy, the Women's Academy Sevens. 
um, last year. We brought him over in January into the Pride program as he coaches with me. And on top of that, he is also the, the talent ID uh, manager for across the country. Adam's done an amazing amount of work in building this database. Uh, before it was uh, it was run by uh, Matt Barr and, and Kenny Goodland, who they had um, names, uh, teams, and age groups, uh, and they had magnets on a big whiteboard in in our office. And we kind of took that over and uh, put it onto a database called Sports Office, which now Rugby Canada we've we put everything in the same place so everybody can uh, can access it. And he's created a, a talent ID network across the country of provincial leads and then finders and fetchers down underneath that of just people that, that play rugby, not necessarily coaches because coaches can sometimes only promote them, their own players, but you know, people that love rugby and people that are passionate, you know, like yourself, because there's, there's thousands of people across the country that love rugby and they want to see it get better. Um, and they want to see somebody succeed from their neck of the woods. Um, and you know, the whole reason that, you know, this is going to work because Canada is so big, but if we've got these people in little pockets across the country that are populating these lists and they're saying, listen, I got this kid who has played rugby since six years old. He's got great game awareness, but maybe he needs a little bit more in this area. Or I got a kid that came from football who doesn't want to play football anymore. And he wants to play rugby because he played it as a kid and he's, uh, he's a crazy athlete. He played like they've won football down in the States. And we've got a few guys like that. Um, those guys get put on the database and then we try to find the best place for these guys. Is it, do they go to university locally? Do they get put in the, um, Nova Scotia Academy with Jack, you know, um, in Newfoundland, do we send them to a club, a local club, so then they can get more rugby experience and then keep building? Uh, are they in Alberta or Manitoba or Saskatchewan? Do they need to go to a local university? Do they need to go somewhere maybe like the Wolfpack with, uh, with, uh, Graham Moffat in Alberta? Is that what makes sense for them? Um, so really just trying to find all these, these, uh, these kids around the country and angle them to where is best for their um, their pathway and their advancement. Um, and then we've got certain guys who we've got on long-term lists, definitely around certain positions. Um, we've created a project prop where we want a lot of kids um, at the play prop uh, to try to get them in the pipeline because uh, we need, we need a lot of props. If we don't have a stable platform at the international level, it's difficult to play rugby. Um, and then, uh, and then all the other positions as well, you know, nines, tens, do we have tens who can see the game that can manage a game, not just play what's in front of them, but also put the ball in the right places and make sure the, that we're, uh, we're moving downhill. You know, there's, there's so many different aspects to it. It's a huge amount of work, especially yeah. what, what Adam's done and what he's been doing over the last kind of three months. It's actually been good. The COVID for him has been has been good. He's been able to really get his teeth into that, and and I've been uh, trying to learn it as well these these last few months. Um, so you know, there's there's things that are happening. Um, that there's a a lot of really hard work that's been uh, been put in definitely since uh, since I've come last last August, and uh, you know things are looking very positive. But unfortunately, it's it's going to take time for you know all this work to start bearing fruit. Um, 
you know, if we were going to have games this summer, which obviously we're not going to, um, a lot of younger guys who have come through the under 20 program and now the MLR uh, teams, we're going to be involved in the national team. And, uh, you know, we're going to start to see some new, new fresh faces. Unfortunately, as I said, we're not going to see that, but maybe in October, November, we'll start to see some type of international rugby. Um, and, uh, definitely for next year, uh, we're going to start to see a lot new fresh faces and, uh, and get um, kind of uh, some young, exciting guys into the into the squad, and uh, and start trying to knock off uh, teams that are around us. Great. So with that, like I had Adam on a little while ago, he's going to be uh, on one of the pods here coming up soon, and we talked a little bit about that. But you you gave it a lot more detail. As the coach of the Pride, and you know, as a former national player, what do you look for? with these players? Like when you look at a kid with a lot of character and a modicum of skill set, or you look at a kid with a lot of skill, but he's got a weak character, he's not a team player. What do you do in that situation? Like, what do you, what do you look for? What do you try and improve on? Things like that. Well, if it's, if it's a, it's a, if it's a situation like that with the character flaw, um, you've got to look really, really hard um, because I'll prefer, I prefer to take somebody who's maybe less skilled, but has better character, better work ethic, uh, maybe has more size, uh, whatever it may be. Um, you know, there's Warren Gatlin has a thing that, where he looks at three different uh, aspects. He looks at skill, size, or speed. And if you've got two of those, you should be you should be all right. Um, and I tend to agree. Um, I'd like to add a character into that as well, because especially at a pride level. We don't want any shitheads, as mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people talk about that as well. But you want people that are good in the team environment because that goes a long way to having a healthy team environment for guys that are competing. Good competition is fine, but you don't want people, you know, trying to throw sticks in people's spokes or whatever it may be uh, because they've got bad character traits. Um, I prefer to have somebody who's, you know, prefers to work hard and get over those skill deficiencies because those can, those can be learned and, and, and gotten better than uh, the guy that's going to, uh, you know, create a, create, be a cancer in a team. That's, I can't, I can't, I can't deal with that. Yeah. That's, I completely agree. 100%. You can teach skill, but it's hard to uh, change somebody's character if they've been ingrained, if it's been ingrained in them. So just a little bit left here. This has been a, it's been a great chat I find, but, Let's, let's look a little bit something else here. You've been an advocate for concussion awareness. Can you talk to us about that? Like maybe it, like with your role with your old pro team in Claremont, does it have, can you talk to us about that aspect? Yeah. So um, it all started with a, with a bad episode uh, of, uh, of mine during the semifinal in 2015 of the champions cup. And then the final two weeks later. So I was played through three different concussions in two games in a two week period. Um, I was, uh, in the final, I was taken off the field, uh, for an HIA head injury assessment at the beginning of the game. Um, and all, then again, uh, for blood at the uh, 67th minute in the second half, all that starting two weeks earlier in the semifinal when I, I came into a rock at the same time as, uh, Billy Bonapola and we both smashed heads kind of like two, two Rams up in the woods. Um, and we both kind of groggily tried to walk away from it. I ended up going off for blood. Two weeks later, playing in the final, first tackle I made, 
I was sparked out and not because I hit my head, but just because of the impact on my shoulder was enough to, uh, to knock me out. And then uh, in the second half, I went off for blood after getting a head knock, uh, started uh, vomiting in the change room, um, got stitched up and was allowed to go back on the field and finish the game. Um, so that started uh, about a month and a half, two months of really, really bad um, symptoms. Um, I, I didn't sleep for about 10 days. I was a monster at home. I had no support from my club. Um, it was, uh, didn't even get a phone call to see if I was all right. Um, it was really, really bad time, tough time for my wife and kids cause they couldn't come near me. I couldn't deal with, with sound, light, any of that. Um, and, uh, so we kind of saw this as, you know, seeing how concussions were being dealt with in North America in a very proactive way. Um, in France, in, in that time, and that was only 2015, it was only five years ago, uh, it was very much sweeping under the rug, don't worry, he's a tough guy, he'll get through it, don't worry about it, you know. It was very much, you know, very old school, very, you know, kind of 70s or 80s for us here in North America. So my wife did a lot of research on it, I did a lot as well, and realized that, you know, in France, nobody was talking about this. You'd go into rugby clubs, and the only things you'd see on the walls were, um, a lot of uh, paraphernalia about not betting on rugby um, because that was kind of the big push that the FFR had done those, those last five years. And we we're like, this is ridiculous because there's nothing about concussion awareness. And, you know, <clears throat> the biggest thing we've always said in developing our foundation, the Rugby Safety Network, and in the work that we did uh, with youth rugby clubs across France was it's all about education. You're not going to take concussions out of rugby. It's always going to happen. Concussions happen everywhere. Concussions happen with kids falling off their bikes, with people falling in the bathtub, going downstairs, being in car accidents. There's many different things where it happens. And if it happens in rugby, they need to, it needs to be dealt with properly. So we did a lot of work on the pre, which was, you know, neck strengthening exercises, tackle technique drills, learning how to fall, learning how to roll, you know, all these things that kids need to learn anyway. Um, and then into the moment that it happens, especially at youth level, in that kids were seeing on the weekends, top 14, guys getting knocked out, coming straight back on, or just getting the magic sponge on the back of the neck, and they're coming back on. And kids are doing this uh, on the weekend, on the Sundays, at mini rugby or at club rugby. And that's just not acceptable, right? Okay. So that was the biggest thing we wanted to do, was to be proactive around this problem in France and educate people around it. And um, on the whole, it was very, very well received. There was obviously some some of the old school who thought, you know, we don't need to talk about this stuff. It's not a big deal. You know, you put the magic sponge on the neck and you'll be good to go. But the horrible thing was, uh, between 2015 and 2018, five children died playing rugby. Two, sorry, two through uh, concussions and one through uh, a neck break and two others with uh, thoracic shock, big tackles. Obviously, concussion was involved as well, but it was deemed that it was thoracic shock, which stopped their hearts. And I thought, this is ridiculous. In France alone, this many kids dying playing rugby was, was unbelievable. And obviously, you have the, the Stringer family that went through that terrible loss here in Canada and I saw what was happening in Canada and how people were being proactive and trying to try to you know deal with the problem properly and in France it was getting swept under the rug so that's why we really pushed um, we set up our foundation we did a lot of work my wife and I through that 
um, and you know just try to be proactive around the problem and 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 help kids and you know we we went to different rugby schools all around France we had uh, we were um, Godfathers at a tournament in Monaco last year. We were supposed to go again this year, but obviously everything got canceled due to COVID. Um, and just being proactive around the problem, you know, teaching kids about tackle technique and when it does happen, what to do, making sure that, you know, they're, they're taken to a doctor and they get properly get set up. And, and it's not a bad thing to tell your teammates that, oh, you know what, I don't feel that right. I don't feel good. You know, maybe I just need to just take five and, talk with a physio or the doctor or a parent and get some proper care because, uh, you know, it's, it's unacceptable that, um, you know, kids are dying playing sport. I agree hundred percent. Are you still suffering any symptoms? Um, I still have difficulty with, with, with loud noises sometimes and, uh, and sometimes bright light. Um, memory seems to be okay. All the other things seem to be all right, but you know, I, I think I'm doing okay. If, I ran into a, a lot of rucks throughout my throughout my life, so um, it's uh, it's definitely something that will probably catch up with me. Um, but I think it's uh, it's really important for us now that now with all the data out there that we uh, we take uh, we take care of the kids that we're we're dealing with. You know, I know in the pride we had some uh, concussion issues, and you know when when our guys uh, have anything like that. They're straight in the physio room. They're straight with the doctor. There's no question of us putting them back on the field until they're fully cleared. Um, there's there's no rush. You know, rugby's a small part of our lives. Um, you know, our, our lives going to go hopefully for, for a very very long time. And if the guy misses one week, two weeks, three months, four months, well, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I've, I've always found, I guess, over the last number of years that. World Rugby has been kind of leading, leading sport advocate for concussion awareness. So hearing this story about what's, what's going on in France, that's real disheartening, um, especially, you know, those five kids and, and how you were treated at your pro team. That's just, it's, it's unacceptable. It's, and it's a shame that they were still stuck in that era. I mean, I, I played rugby and hockey and I had nine concussions. My last was in 06 and I still have symptoms from to this day. And, you know, for me, I'm 43 and playing, you know, contact sports in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there really wasn't that much talk around concussions. You just kind of kept going, you know. No, that's it. That's it. And that's because back in those days, we didn't have the data. It just wasn't there. People weren't talking about it. Um, researchers weren't looking at it. And, um, you know, you talk about World Rugby. I've talked to a lot of the, uh, the directors and the administrative side of at World Rugby, and they and they're beside themselves with France because France are like the they're like the black sheep. They're like the, the bad kid in the in the in the class. They don't want to listen, um, and they say they put up all these excuses, saying, "Well, all the pro team doctors won't come up to Paris and have a big meeting and all the rest of it." It's because they they don't think they need to because they they think they know exactly what they're doing and. They, They'll just keep going and doing things as they all have always done them. Um, but, you know, as we all know, tradition in sport can be good, but it can also be very, very dangerous uh, if, it, if you don't adapt. You think World Rugby would bring any sanctions onto them? Like, you know, if you don't adhere to this, you're out of the next World Cup? Or, like, is that too strict? What do you think? Uh, that's, I think, I don't think they will because um, if you look at the, the guys who are now, you know, you've got um, Bernard, Bernard Laporte, ex-FFR uh, um, president, 
Um, he's crooked as a, as the he's he's he's, he's crooked as a sickle on the uh, the old U.S. flag, and uh, and he's uh, you know he's, um, he's 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 the criminal basically. Like you know, I was very disappointed to see that uh, him and Bill Beaumont got through. Uh, I thought it should have been uh, Augustine Pichot. I know Augustine; he's a younger guy, and I know a lot of not a lot of change is going to happen at that level because it's more at the executive level where things get changed. But I think the winds of change would have slowly started to come through world rugby if, uh, if Gus had got uh, elected. But, you know, it's, um, that's, it's too little too late now. And now we just need to uh, keep building forward and, and hopefully that, uh, you know, people start adapting and start changing their, uh, their ideas uh, around concussion, especially. And then in world rugby's thing around, um, you know, just trying to create a, a better global calendar. And uh, like you talk about the lines going down, uh, going down to South Africa, that's, that's great. But, you know, that's just the same unions making more money. Yeah, that's five, that's five clubs, five unions right there out of the entire global game. I just, it's just, and it's, when you hear Bill Beaumont speak about it, he goes, well, they're their own entity. They can, you know, we're not going to touch anything because that's when they do it. But it impacts the entire global game, yet you're allowing them to dictate the calendars to when they do things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome to watch, but... Yeah. It's the old boys club, right? And that's yeah. why I thought it would be great for Gus to be, uh, to be elected in and start trying to, try to adapt and change that. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of countries in the world that are playing rugby and enjoying it, um, and they need that support. You know, the old boys club of the, the, the five nations, really, because the Six Nations, sure, it's Six Nations, but Italy aren't really part of it, even though, yes, they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, when it comes down to, uh, you know, the Lions, Italy's not involved, so. No. I, uh, I, do, I was a little disappointed in Rugby Canada, and you probably can't speak to it, but I, I still don't understand why RC voted in Beaumont back again and, 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 and turned their back on P. Show, but, you know, I'm not the one making those decisions either, so hopefully they get information that the rest of the public in Canada didn't understand. Yeah, no, there's, um, it's, there's no, no, I don't think uh, anybody turned their back on Gus. Uh, Gus is still going to try to advocate and work uh, in, in South America for, for, for their interests, and that's, and that's great. And Rugby Canada has, has made their decision to, uh, to make sure that we've got some stability, because I think that's definitely what we need over the next, the next cycle. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to keep controlling what we can control, and that's rugby in Canada and, um, you know, with the pride, with the age grade stuff and the national team and, and, and trying to get better. And that's, uh, that's the biggest thing we can uh, concentrate on. And the, uh, the world rugby stuff will, uh, will you know, whether it benefits us or not, we'll, we'll see what happens in the future. Yeah. All right. Last thing. Can you leave us with any good rugby stories? Something, maybe throw a teammate under the bus, something fun that happened that kind of sums up or epitomizes a good rugby tour. A good rugby tour. Well, I've been on quite a few. I've been, I've been very fortunate to be on it quite a few. Um, I think uh, I've had some good ones in New Zealand going up to the Bay of Islands and uh, some good ones in France going around a different, different places down to Spain and uh, over into my remember my first one with Thanathi we went on a preseason tour to Slovenia um, and uh, that was that was pretty amazing um, I think uh, the best one was my first one with the pride where we went to Germany um, thanks to Carl Fix uh, a great 
a great rugby supporter uh, out in Saskatchewan and Carl set it up with David Clark to, uh, to go to Germany and uh, Carl's German. So he, uh, he basically smoothed everything out and uh, set up the whole, uh, the whole tour. And uh, we went around Germany, South Germany into Northern France as well. And uh, had an amazing time, uh, you know, learning about culture and playing different games. And uh, we played the German national team as a, as an under 23 team and beat them. And that was a huge finish to the, uh, to the tour um, and just being, you know, Canadians abroad with a bunch of guys who really enjoyed ourselves uh, in what we did and uh, we were being successful at what we were doing and, um, you know, his organization, the group that we had, uh, you know, drinking leaders, steins of beer in the, in the beer houses after games and stuff. It was just like, it was really, really fun. Um, we ended up staying with a, uh, three three buddies. We ended up uh, staying in Europe for a week after that. We went off on on trains around uh, around Europe and ended up uh, up in uh, in uh, Innsbruck in Austria because we got kicked out of Czech Republic because we didn't have the right, <laughs> the right visas back at those days. <laughs> ended up going skiing in the summer and uh, drinking more big liter steins of beer. Not getting hung over really because it was the beer was so fresh and. Uh, no, it was, uh, it was a really, really good, fun time. And that was my kind of first foray into Europe. Um, and uh, it definitely created a bit of a, a fire in my ass saying, you know, I wanted to come back here and I wanted to enjoy myself uh, in, this, in these countries uh, a little bit more as, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a great time. That's great. Well, listen, Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Uh, great insight on the, on the game in Canada and really appreciate what, uh, what you said and our listeners will definitely enjoy it. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right, cheers. That was great. Love chatting rugby with Jamie. Very knowledgeable guy. Uh, heart, gritty player, just uh, full of character on the pitch. Uh, you can ask Paul O'Connell about that. Uh, tough Canadian for sure. And he's done a lot for the game on the pitch, and now he's doing a lot of odd. Lot, uh, lot of, oh, geez. It's one of those days, I guess. And uh, it's, it was great having Jamie on to chat with us. Uh, especially with that Pacific Pride program, which will uh, he's going to turn into something spectacular for us in Canada. So thank you very much, Jamie. It was awesome. Love to have you back on at another time. Uh, coming up soon, we have Pam Buisa. Um, Pam, as I said up, uh, earlier, is an up-and-coming seven-star for Canada and a Black Lives Matter activist as well. We have Karen Paquin, a uh, very funny, very knowledgeable uh, player for Canada on the 7-15 stage. And we have Jeff Hassler. Uh, Jeff's chatted with us a few days ago. Uh, really funny guy. He's got some great stories. Ray Barkwell as well. Um, he's actually doing his master's in coaching right now, and he's actually taking some classes with one of my colleagues. Uh, so he's, uh, he was fun to talk with. And shortly after that, we'll have Nadia Popov on as well to talk rugby and mental health among athletes. So it's typical. Uh, I just continue to say thanks to everybody that's still working, whether you're an essential worker, whether you've been working in the grocery store, or driving transport, or uh, working at the fire stations or the police department, whatever. Thank you so much for looking after us, looking after all of us during the global pandemic. Uh, as always, we need to say thanks to Ben Sound Music for supplying us with our tunes. That's uh, featured at the start and end of each pod. And as always, I love hearing topic requests from all of you. Feel free to uh, send me a note uh, with thoughts or suggestions or questions you want to ask guests, especially that you know the next few that are coming up. So as always, I want to sign off. It's Jamie. 
Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. Keep on rocking.